you can open up to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6 is where we're going to be at here shortly. Before we get there, though, I'd like to talk about the tree that's uh, presented behind me. This is, uh, this is what, what, you would, what you would call the great African tree. It has a much more specific name, but I decided not to embarrass myself tonight by trying to pronounce that. Um, I'm sorry, but you can Google that if you want to. But what's commonly known is sometimes the upside-down tree because in, in winter this tree looks like it's just been turned upside-down because the top of it looks like the roots growing out and not the actual foliage. But it's what's most often called the Great African Tree because it's the national tree to that continent and a lot of their logo and a lot of their work, this tree is often featured. When I think about great, amazing trees, and I think about the North America, I think about the sequoia tree, the big redwoods out west and everything, those massive trees that are almost hard to comprehend just how big they are. I remember a hike I went on um, in Alabama one time. It said at the end of this hike, this was in, uh, man, I can't remember the forest, but it was in Coleman, Alabama. Uh, but the, the hike was big tree hike, and so it promised you at the end of this hike it was the biggest tree in the state of Alabama. I don't know how they got that. I don't know if they measured every tree. And so we were criticizing on the way until we got there, and it was massive. And we go, okay, yeah, this is probably the biggest tree in Alabama. But it pales in comparison to the one I've seen, because I've never seen the redwoods or anything, this little big tree of Alabama, pales in comparison to the great African tree. This tree isn't as big as the redwoods. This, this, this one will grow to be about 100 feet tall, so still pretty impressive, about 10-story building in its height. But it also will grow to be about 150 feet wide about a half a football field's length wide. But the unique thing about the great African tree is its growth pattern, how it grows and how long it stays alive. The unique thing about it is, just like some trees grows new, grow new branches off the sides, the great African tree, from its base, from the same root ball, the exact same tree, will grow a whole new trunk right next to it. And as it grows, multiple trunks will grow at the same time, forming almost a one, still one tree, with six or seven trunks around it in a hollow center. It's fascinating. I, I, I kind of lost some time looking up some of the, Google images, of the Google images of the great African tree because they're just majestic and they're incredible what people have used them for over the ages. They say that the very first post office in Africa was built inside of the great African tree. There have been cafes you can visit built inside of these and even little hotels where you can stay nights in the great African tree because of how it's built. It's an amazing thing. I've really enjoyed getting to know them. But the sad thing is, well, before I get that, I, I almost went over the, 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 to me, the coolest part about the tree. From the best we know, because they don't, they don't grow with normal, typical ring-style growth pattern, these trees can grow up to, because we've had them, we, we can test them to this degree, at least up to 2,500 years. A tree that's over 2,500 years old. It's amazing to me, and these grow on the eastern side of Africa, that possibly certain people who saw the apostles, who saw maybe even the Son of God walking in cities and then left and went back home and walked past the very trees that I could walk past today. And I know that if you go and visit the Promised Land, you can walk the paths, you can walk the streets, you can see the mountains that Christ looked upon. But it's another thing in my, eye to, in my mind to think about that a living organism that could still be alive and growing and, and providing for its community that could have been alive all the way back in the days of Christ. It's an amazing thing to think about. But the sad thing is these, these trees are dying out. 
In the last 15 years, five out of the six oldest African trees have died. And not only have they died, they've quite literally just fallen apart. They have, been, they have deteriorated from the inside out and fallen away. Branches will start to turn brown and die and just simply fall off. And then from the inside out, you can start to see it just wither up and die. And so scientists, obviously about 15 years ago, really dug in and said, okay, what's going on? Is it climate change? Is it this? Is it that? And they really still don't know, but the leading cause of what they think is wrong with this tree is a fungus called heart rot. And it's just kind of what you'd imagine what that phrase sounds like. It's a disease. It's a fungus that grows from the inside and slowly, over decades, over time, can eat away at a tree until it falls apart. And it's sad to see these amazing trees fall away. The great African tree, five out of the last six of the oldest trees, now you can't visit them, they're gone because of a problem that eats away from the inside out. And it's sad, it's sad to think that. I think about things in my hometown that I'm sad they're not there anymore, right? That were just there 20 years ago and it's sad to go and visit that this congregation is not there, maybe this, you know, my favorite ice cream shop is not there anymore or whatever it may be. It's sad to see things that were there for a long time, waste away. And these trees, these trees stand as a testament to time and strength. But the, most, the saddest thing about this is that far too often Lord's church resemble these trees in the sense that we can deteriorate from the inside out. That the greatest threat the Lord's church faces today is heart rot deteriorating from within these walls and radiating out. You know, a lot of times I think we can get overwhelmed with how difficult our world is or how challenging some of this might be. And as the world shifts around our church, the Lord's church, yes, is facing great challenges ahead, but I'll be honest, I'm not worried about those, about those challenges. Matthew 16 says that the Lord's church will prevail, and yes, times are getting tough, and yes, the way the world's going is not going to get any easier for the church, but if history will show us anything, it's that the Lord's church and His people thrive in difficult times. So as the world changes and as times get more difficult, these pews should, be, these pews should get fuller. This room should get louder. Because as, if history can show us anything, like I said, the Lord's church will only stand to improve itself as times seem to get harder and harder. It's not the world changing that I'm worried about that's going to collapse the Lord's kingdom. It's not, the, it's not the, the, a shift in, in government. It's not a societal change. It's nothing like that. The thing that stresses me out or scares me that could tear away the Lord's church or eat it away from the inside out is sowing discord, is spreading strife, is bad mindsets, is loose tongues, the Lord's church will win one day, right? I, I, I remember one preacher saying, listen, guys, I read the book of Revelation. We win at the end, right? We're not going anywhere. The Lord's church will prevail. But how many congregations, how many outposts of the Lord's kingdom have to close before we understand that maybe there's an issue going on? And maybe it's not our world's fault. It's not helping, that's for sure. Maybe it's not our government's fault. Maybe it's not the society's fault. Maybe it's something going on. I believe no greater damage can be done to the Lord's church than by its own members at times. Churches don't split because of changes in government. Churches don't split because of societal shifts. And churches don't split because of hard times. Churches split because brothers and sisters stopped acting 
like brothers and sisters. And I think that's why Solomon chose in Proverbs chapter 6 to culminate, to end his things on what God hates on sowing discord and spreading strife. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. Because tonight we're going to look at the issue that's, that's plaguing every congregation, that's plaguing the Lord's kingdom out throughout the, all of the world. And we're going to ask ourselves if simply if we care enough to do something about it. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, verse 19, a false witness who utters lies, and lastly, one who spreads strifes, or some translations would say sows discords among brothers. We can understand that possibly this, this seventh one might be the culminating idea of the seven things that God hates because the literary device that Solomon uses to build up to this one. And then not only that, if we read the context, verses 12 through 15, spreading strife is the very thing Solomon was commenting on when he brings up this topic. Read with me. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, or, at the end of verse 14, who spreads strife or sows discord therefore his calamity will come suddenly and instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing spreading strife sowing discord the synonym phrases of each other that might more than anything else is something that our God my father hates and what a shame it is that it still persists some 2500 years later Scientists in the, the nation of Africa, they're weeping over these great trees that have stood for 2,500 years and now they're up and dying because of a disease rotting them from the inside out. But what a shame it is that a kingdom that our, that our Savior died for, an establishment that our God built the world to hold, this congregation is dying because of a problem we've known has been there 2,000 years ago. Spreading strife, Sowing discord should not surprise us. We've heard it, right? We know what that sounds like. We know what it looks like. We've been a part of it at times. We can remember if you've grown up, if you've grown up in the church, you can remember comments and criticisms and mindsets and actions from when you were a child all the way up. This is a problem that has been plaguing the Lord's kingdom from day one. It's a problem that unless we fix it, is it going to continue to eat away at his kingdom from the inside out. So it's, I think it's time that we do something about it. Now I'm not going to profess that I have the answer to all of that, that has been an issue, and here's, here's my thoughts about it. Let's solve it tonight, right? But I think if we just be a little more intentional, and if we remind ourselves our part in this rescue, then maybe we can do something about it. Tonight, how I want to look at this, or well, let me, first let me say this. A good example of, the, of this is in the book of 3 John. If you want to flip over to 3 John, we're going to read just a few verses. This is one of the great examples of spreading strife or sowing discord in all of the Bible. Starting in verse 9, John writes, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied... 
And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. John is writing to a church here and he's saying there's an issue there. I wrote a letter to this congregation. There's a man, Diotrephes, there that he outright rejected it. He disagreed either with the content or he disagreed with the popularity that John was getting over him. And I love the comment John writes and why. Diotrephes, comma, who loves to be first among them. You ever had, you, I, I talk to teenagers a lot, so a lot of my illustrations come from the, go to the classroom, right? But you ever been in a, work, in a workplace before, family outing, or in the classroom where you have an idea, right? And you tell your friend, okay, you know what, what if we did it this way? And before you can stop them, they raise their hand and they, and they kind of take your idea from you and say, okay, what if we did it this way? And you're like, well, okay, well, thanks, right? Some people just like to be first. They don't care what they have to do to get there. They like to be seen as the smartest, the brightest, the greatest among their group. And I think that's the issue that John is calling out about Diotrephes here, is that John wrote them a letter, but Diotrephes refused it because he wanted to be first. He didn't didn't want his congregation, this group of people, looking to John, even though he's an apostle. He didn't want them looking to John for direction, advice, and wisdom. So he rejected it. But not only did he do that, But he spread, how does John put it? Unjustly accusing us with wicked words. He sows some discord among the brethren. What What does that act mean, sowing discord? I didn't grow up on a farm like Ben, so I don't have stories about planting acres, but I did grow about eight stalks of corn with Nana one time. And I do remember sitting on the ground and playing in the dirt and digging that hole and putting that little seed down in there, right? We understand, all of us understand in this society what sowing means. But what do we learn from sowing? What is that tonight? What what can we learn from sowing discord or the idea of sowing there in that phrase? That sometimes these actions don't have to be like Diotrephes. Diotrephes was doing some huge things, right? He's outright openly rejecting John, refusing anybody else who does accept John. But sometimes sowing discord can be done by small actions, right? To, be, to plant a mustard, a mustard tree, mustard plant, whatever it is, you plant a small mustard seed. Sometimes massive issues in the kingdom are planted by small comments in the pews. Sometimes church divisions start months, years before that, my comments after class. One of the ideas I learned from the idea of sowing discord, sowing means that a comment, a mindset, an action that is said today can lead to issues as it grows, as it matures months and months down the line. And what does discord itself mean? Discord means uh, a a, a disruption and harmony between two people, places, or things, right? I am a Georgia fan, and I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for about five years. That is what discord looks like, right? I disrupted harmony with there, okay? Everybody was wearing their their shade of red, and I just did did my best of blending in with a different shade of red, right? I disrupted the the status quo there a little bit. 
So sowing discord or comments or ideas, discussions, actions, mindsets, whatever you want to say, that disrupts that. That disrupts the peace. That disrupts the functionality of people working together or the common goal of the kingdom. And that's exactly what Diotrephes is doing here. He's doing it in very big ways, but what I'm saying here tonight as well is that sometimes the smaller things can be even more dangerous. Because when we, we can tell when someone's causing discord in big ways, right? If right now um, one of the elders decide to stand up and say, Jay, I disagree, right? Or right now if I was teaching class on Wednesday and one of my teens stood up, stood up and said, Jay, I don't like what you're saying, right? That would be a large, very observable way. Okay, well, this is, this is kind of disrupting the harmony here for a moment, right? Sometimes acting in big ways, it's so easy to observe, we can kind of put away in a box and say, okay, well, we definitely aren't going to get caught up in that, right? But it's these small actions, these conversations, these comments, these discussions over lunch about our frustrations over a certain situation that continue to fester and to grow. I think these smaller actions can be way more dangerous than the big actions that sometimes we see from time to time. So my question for you tonight is pretty simple. Do you care enough about the church to not continue doing that? Do you care enough about the kingdom to decide tonight to follow Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29? And if at all possible, you say no unwholesome word out of your mouth. Paul would write in Ephesians 4 verse 29, the beautiful, um, much better put way of saying it, Lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with this neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not let the devil, and do not give the devil. He must still no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And this is verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to, th to those who hear. I don't know maybe of a better verse I need to memorize at times, right? You ever been in a moment where a difficult situation is happening in your life and a, and a passage pops up in your mind? You ever been in a situation and a, a comment Christ made kind of plays across the ticker in your head, right? I think I need to memorize Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification or growing according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And I know I'm not the only one in here tonight that maybe, need, maybe we need to memorize this verse together. Because don't we have a lot of opportunities to criticize don't we have a lot of opportunities to tear someone down? Don't we have a lot of opportunities to share? Don't we have a lot of opportunities to share disappointments about someone? Don't we have a lot of opportunities to be let down by somebody? Instead of going to them, going to them about it, we go to someone else. Sowing discord can come in a lot of different ways, and we've got a lot of opportunities to sow discord tonight. Sowing discord is getting others to join you and simply not working. Sometimes it's not a comment, it's just a mindset. Sowing discord is sharing your disappointment with others for sympathy and not insight on how to manage. Sowing discord is not liking how things are handled and making sure other people are upset with you. Sowing discord is having an issue with a brother and going to others first, or having an issue with a brother and going to others only. 
Sowing discord is not understanding a decision the elders make and continue to simply complain or criticize without ever going to them and seeking understanding. We've got a lot of opportunities to sow discord our day in and day out of our lives. I think I need to memorize Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of my mouth, but only that is good that for edifying and building peace. So how much does the church mean to you? Because you are going to be disappointed in brothers and sisters. You are going to criticize a decision someone around you makes. And when that moment comes, the next time you're sitting in a chair with someone, the next time you're, you're out and you run into somebody, or the next time you go to lunch with them, and you're upset about this, you've been disappointed with this decision, or this action, or this brother or sister who let you down, do you care enough about the church not to share that? Do you care enough about the kingdom that maybe if you do have a bad, bad mindset, maybe you just keep it to yourself? And I'm not trying to advocate hiding pain. I'm not trying to advocate hiding issues. If we do have criticism, if we do have concerns, then we simply follow what the Bible says and go to the person we have the issue about, right? So if you have been disappointed, if you are hurt, or if you are concerned about a decision eldership or leadership makes, then go to them about it. I'm not trying to say sweep it under the rug and just get on with your life so that you can keep the peace. All I'm saying is then don't just scoot down the pew and talk about it. The Lord's church is perfect because the Lord died for it. The people in it are not. But it as an establishment is. And it's worth everything I can do to keep it moving in the right direction. I think the best example in all of Scripture of someone uh, uh, of sowing discord is a man who decided not to sow discord. If you have your Bibles, flip over to back, all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. I would tell the kids, go to the book of Psalms and take a left, right? Nehemiah chapter 1. I love the story of Nehemiah because of his energy and how much he cares for Jerusalem. Read with me Nehemiah 1 verses 1 through 3. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was of Susa in the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, we don't have the time to go into full context, but if we could read the whole book of Ezra and we could look, read the whole kind of the history of Israel up to this point, we understand that Jerusalem, the capital of the, the, you know, the kingdom of Judah, is in complete disrepair, right? There's no stone laying on top of each other. There's been some remnants of people that have been able to move back into Jerusalem, but it's not going well. The walls are still broken down. The houses are still burned out. It looks like a war zone. Now, we had this idea that Nehemiah probably would not have lived in Jerusalem. It would have been his ancestors that would have lived there. He's been, they had been removed from Jerusalem for so long that he probably was not born there. Maybe visited there once or twice, but his ancestors are from there. And just like earlier, we've all been in that situation, right, where it hurts us to go back to where we're from and to see something not there. It hurts us maybe to see someone or an establishment or a congregation or a place that meant so much for us simply just no longer be in existence. 
And here we've got the story of Nehemiah where he's working in the, the, the capital here. He's living in Susa. And he finds out that Jerusalem is still not... Yes, Ezra. Yes, a, a huge party have moved back to, to Jerusalem. But it's still just not working. Efforts are being made, but progress is not being able to be seen yet. You know what Nehemiah does? Verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we've got this incredible prayer, verses 5 through 11, 5 through 11 where Nehemiah pours it out and says, Lord, I know this is our fault. Jerusalem is, is, in, is in the state that it is because of us. We turned our back on you. However, you said if we turned back, you would heal us. Lord, please heal us. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see that Nehemiah lays it all out yet again. He's working, he's the cupbearer to the great king of Artaxerxes. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The amazing thing about Nehemiah in just these short two chapters, these, in these short, what, what, 15 verses that we've kind of looked through this, this evening, is that he cared so much about Jerusalem. He cared so much about the kingdom that he was from, not even the one he was living in yet, but his home. That upon hearing that it still wasn't doing well, that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days, and he prayed, earnestly prayed, that it would be healed. But then the next day at work, when he is serving under the enemy king, he is still so physically upset by the destruction of Jerusalem in its current state that the king notices and says, what's going on, right? And he starts to tremble. He's afraid. But he cares about the kingdom so much that he decides to still speak up and say, why could I be happy when my home is burned down? The king says, what do you want me to do about that? And we can understand how dire a situation this is because look at the bottom of verse 3. Bottom of verse, uh, where am I at? Yeah, the bottom of verse 3. The king said to me, verse 4, excuse me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You ever been so afraid and over a in a conversation that you literally say a prayer in between comments? Nehemiah is standing before the king the country he is serving in is the very country responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. The king is the one that still has his thumb on top of the city. And he's about to ask him to send him back to Jerusalem to, to build its walls back up. That's how much Nehemiah cared about the kingdom he was tr trying to serve in. You know what he could have done? When Hananiah comes back and tells Nehemiah, you know what, Jerusalem just isn't... Oh, Ezra's there. We sent a huge party back over there, but Nehemiah, I'm sorry to tell you, it's still pretty terrible. You know what Nehemiah could have done in that situation? 
He could have cried out and criticized and ridiculed the leadership of Ezra and the lack of progress in the leadership over there. They had been living there for some time. The whole book of Ezra shows how they moved there. They have a hard time. They've been spending some time there, no fault on their own. They're not able to rebuild the walls yet. And Nehemiah could have spent those three days, instead of weeping and mourning, he could have spent those days, those moments, those first reactions of why aren't we doing more? Why couldn't Ezra get this done? Why isn't this going the way I want? And a lot of us in this room, a lot of us that serve here at Buford, we, we feel that way at times, right? We see a program or an aspect of the Lord's king, the kingdom here that we don't like or isn't as successful as we want it to be. And we say, you know what? The problem there is that leader. The issue there is the way it's set up. The problem is we don't, we don't have the funding here. And we just continue to complain or think about, okay, these are all the reasons why this program, this ministry, this out, whatever it may be, let's just focus on the problem and let's just continue to talk about why it's not working. Instead, not Nehemiah says, no, I'm so hurt that it's not working that I'm going to involve myself. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 18 is, if ever, this would be, if this was episodes of the Bible, this would make a great episode to watch, right? He arrives in Jerusalem. The king of Susa says yes. Artaxerxes says yes. He arrives days later, months later, in the middle of night, and he, and he doesn't delay any time. He goes in, and he surveys all the walls. Chapter 2, let's start in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem, was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone that my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. There, were no, there was no animal with me except the animal of which I was riding. So, so I went out at night by the valley gate to the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mouth to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall, and I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. And then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put the, their hands to the good work. Nehemiah spends a few days going on these nighttime rides, these inspections around the wall, to get a really good sense. Okay, how, just how bad is this situation? What is the work? You know, kind of what, what's the lay of the land here? How broken down are the walls? How consumed are the gates? Before we get to work, let's see what's going on. And that's a huge step in the process that people who sow discord or spread strife miss, Right? People who get upset about certain situations or people who are upset that a, a program isn't as effective or isn't run like they want it to be ran, they get upset and then they don't give due diligence and go check it out, right? I remember one time I had, I had someone complain. This was, at, this was at a different congregation. I had, I had uh, shown a movie to teenagers and stuff like that, a movie that I had checked and was okay with and everything, and I had a parent come up to me and said, you know what, I don't like that movie. I said, oh, what's wrong with it? And they were talking to me about it. I said, well, have you seen it? They go, no. I go, okay. 
Well, maybe watch it and check it out and then come back and maybe tell me, you know, how your thoughts on it after that, right? A lot of times we see a situation that was handled way over there and we go, I don't like that. You know, I don't like how that was handled. That program over here, it's not being ran like I want it. And so I'm going to talk, to, I'm going to talk at lunch about how, how messed up that is and how broken that system is. You know, after class, I'm going to kind of spread some, I'm going to sow some discord and make a comment about how I didn't like how that teaching was or I didn't appreciate that comment right there, right? Or maybe we see of a, cer- a certain, we, we, we see someone who's not in these pews for a few weeks and we start to talk, you know, around behind their backs, but, you know, we haven't seen, you know, blah, blah, blah in a while. I can only imagine what's going on there, right? And we don't get involved. We don't go ask those questions. We don't look at what's going on. We don't seek out the people who are missing. We simply criticize from afar and say, you know what, that's a broken system. Nehemiah gets involved. He goes and inspects the walls each night before he makes any comments to the people about it. And then in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, you see that he himself gets his hands dirty, right? That that every night he invites 150 of the workers from the wall to eat at his table. And in the mornings, he grabs the shovel, he grabs the spear, and he goes out and he works alongside them. I feel like we have a generational problem right now in the kingdom that as society changes around us and as the church struggles to, to keep up and to stay sound, that our older generation says, you know what, let's just talk about the good old days. Let's just talk about how effective this congregation used to be. Let's just talk about how full these pews could once were. And let's stop there. And that's the older generation. And then the newer generation, we walk in and we go, you know what? This isn't right. This is, bi- this is based on tradition. I don't like this program because of this. I got my feelings hurt over there. And we just complain about how messed up something is. We don't do anything about it. The older generation can look down and the younger generation can look up and we can both say, you know what, it's, it's time to stop talking and it's time to start working because the kingdom needs a lot of work. We could do a lot more and a lot better about being stronger together. And it's, we're never going to reach our potential if we continue to have those discussions, if we continue to make those comments, if we continue to spread that mindset of disappointment, of criticism, of slander, of gossip, or any negative talk that only aims to, to tear down without seeking to build up. And the question, like I said earlier, is pretty simple. Do you care enough about the kingdom to follow Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29? Do you care enough about Buford Church of Christ to put it first above everything else? You know, the student who spoke last um, in the Piedmont Road series last Sunday night did did an incredible job. And he made a great point about injustice, about getting feelings hurt. He says, there's no coincidence that in Matthew 5, Christ said it's the meek who will inherit the earth. 
And I hope I don't disappoint anybody by saying this tonight, but again, like I said earlier, you are going to be disappointed. You are going to be let down. There are going to be decisions and, and situations you want to criticize and you want to say why and get feelings hurt. And it's going to be so easy to look around at the pew or to wait till lunch to make that comment to criticize. And instead, I think we need to be meek. We need to be humble. We need to go to the people we have issues with and we need to talk to them. Because if not, we're going to, this congregation, or just not this congregation, but the kingdom is going to eat itself from the inside out. So tonight, is there discord in your life? Is there a disruption of harmony between you and another brother and sister that you haven't dealt with, that you need prayers for? Is there discord between you and a belief and, and a decision that you need to go to, and I'm not asking to come forward, but something in your life that you personally need to take care of after service, on a phone call tomorrow, whatever it may be, to rectify or to create bridges that are no longer there. Or maybe you have a discord in your life that's more spiritual speaking where there's something else, not like we were talking about tonight, that's just disrupting your peace. Maybe there's a temptation that's eaten away at you from the inside out that you no longer feel secure in. Or maybe there's a situation in your life, loss of a loved one or a difficult time, a difficult phase of life, a season of life, where you feel like you just desperately need the prayers of the brothers and sisters in this room. In a moment, you're going to have a chance to come forward and you're going to have a, a chance for your brothers and sisters to wrap their arms around you and love you and show you and support them. But tonight, let me say this. God hates, in Proverbs chapter 6, seven things. Let us not trivialize something that God hates. That was Ben's first point in the opening lesson two months ago. What a shame is it that when we, as God's people, we make a big deal, something that is so big that God would use the language of hate for and we go, hmm, well, I'm just, this is just a discussion over tacos, right? That's just a comment after class. God hates when discord is sown. God hates when strife is spread. And if you need any reason to rectify that or to make peace in any point in your life, I just ask that you come forward as we stand and sing.